The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1924, a group of boys in Wales were drawn to a sweet shop filled with jars of bright candies. The shop, which was called Mrs. Pratchett's Sweet Shop, was run by an elderly woman named Mrs. Morgan, who had once been married to a shoemaker. She had had a hard life raising her children by herself after her husband had died young. She tried her hand as a dressmaker and as a confectioner and tobacconist and a landlady. She did not smile at the boys who came in to buy the sweets, the boys who couldn't resist even though they found her frightening and somewhat repulsive. They couldn't resist the licorice bootlaces, the pear drops, the tonsil ticklers, the bullseyes, the strawberry bonbons, the sherbet suckers, and above all, the gobstoppers. Gobstoppers. The word itself is rich with humor and an internal melody. In America, they are sometimes called jawbreakers. Huge, round, and hard. They break your jaw and stop your gob. Gob being a slang word for mouth. For someone without much money, like a young boy... They are desirable because they can last all day. This was a great era for candy. This gray Welsh landscape between the wars. One of the boys later recalled the Cadbury Company sending boxes of chocolates to the school with brand new flavors for the boys to try. But we are in the world of Mrs. Pratchett's sweet shop, and the boys developed a plan. They would put a dead mouse in the jar of gobstoppers. When the hated Mrs. Morgan reached in with her filthy hands, which looked as if they had been handling lumps of coal all day, she would not pull out a gobstopper, but a dead mouse. The boys distracted her and pulled off their caper. It was, in fact, as they called it, the Great Mouse Caper of 1924. The next day, the boys returned to the sweet shop. No one was there, and the jar of gobstoppers was smashed on the floor. They were horrified, fearing that they might have killed Mrs. Morgan by the shock. When they got to school, they found, happily or perhaps unhappily, that this was not the case. Mrs. Morgan was there, standing with the headmaster, lifting her hand to point a finger at the boys whom she knew to be the culprits. They were lined up and caned mercilessly. Red stripes on bottoms, with Mrs. Morgan calling out, That's it! That's the one! Lay into him, headmaster! It was a time for... It was a time of corporal punishment for the least of crimes. Canings by headmasters and senior boys were common, and for a violation like this one, the punishment was particularly brutal. The last boy in line listened to all his fellow boys being beaten with cruelty. And then it was his turn, and he heard the voice of Mrs. Morgan calling out, That's it, give it to him, he's the worst of the lot. He remembered that moment for the rest of his life, and whenever he returned to it, his heart raced and his body burned with recalled pain. That little boy... The last one in the line was named Roald Dahl. 
He grew up to become one of the most famous authors in the world, known for his children's books. And running throughout his books are some common themes, the cruelty of adults and how capricious and arbitrary and unjust their punishments can sometimes seem to children. The cruelty of life, in fact, how mean certain grown-ups are, greasy, dirty, unkind, angry. Also running through those books, a love for sweets, for the colors, the names, the joy of the taste. He created an unforgettable narrative featuring those sweets, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and an unforgettable wizard-like proprietor, Willy Wonka. And he created many other stories as well, like James and the Giant Peach and the Fantastic Mr. Fox and one of my favorite children's books, Danny, the Champion of the World. He also wrote some stories for grown-ups, and he was a World War II fighter pilot, an intelligence officer, and the husband of a Hollywood movie star. Roald Dahl, today, on the History of Literature. Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us today. I am glad you are here. I am struggling, people. Struggling in all walks of life. My walks of life are not so ambulatory, I guess you might say, but we press on, don't we? Brighter days will surely lie ahead. Speaking of heads, perhaps of the severed kind, we have an interesting author today, Roald Dahl. What a crazy life. He had. Usually we start with the life and then get to the works. But in this case, let's try reversing that. We'll see how it goes, since that's how most people experience Mr. Dahl, I think. You read the books as a child, knowing nothing about him, or maybe as a parent, reading them to your child. And then along the way, you somewhere learn more about Roald Dahl. Some of it's sweet, some of it's savory, and plenty of it not so savory, frankly. He had an easy life in some ways, a hard life in some others, a wonderful disposition and generous personality at times, and a cranky and prejudiced mind at others. The books are stunning, beautifully written and full of creative energy. There's no one quite like Roald Dahl. He's one of a handful of children's authors. You could build a theme park or a musical around Beatrix Potter, J.K. Rowling, Dr. Seuss. He's of that ilk. Stories bursting out of him with cleverness and wit and incredible imagination. So, let's do this. Let's take our first... Oh, wait. Wait, before we take our first break, I was asked for this the other day. Let's do this first. I was asked to name my top 10 singers of all time. Not the best, just my personal top 10. I know this isn't literature exactly, but maybe this is of some interest. I put it together. I thought I would share it with you. Here's my top 10. Not exactly in this order. 1. Luciano Pavarotti. 2. Frank Sinatra. 3. Prince. 4. These are singers. Top 10 singers. 4. Ella Fitzgerald. 5. Paul McCartney. 6. Billie Holiday. 7. Adele. 8. John Lennon. 9, Louis Armstrong, and 10, Aretha Franklin. Mm. 
Some narrow misses are Etta James, Bjork, Steve Perry, Michael Jackson, Tina Turner, Stevie Nicks, and Christine McVie, underrated. Dolly Parton, Janis Joplin, Tony Bennett, David Lee Roth, Howlin' Wolf, Stevie Wonder, Muddy Waters, Bessie Smith, John Lee Hooker, Whitney Houston, John Legend, and Dean Martin. A million others could be added. As soon as I made that list, I realized I left out Marvin Gaye and Robert Plant, two big misses right off the bat, but I kind of like my top 10, especially when I look at my honorable mentions. First names only. That's the kind of people those are. Adele, Aretha, Louis, Frank, Prince, Paul and John, Billy, Ella, and Luciano. Not too shabby. I had to pause there. I don't know if you noticed because I had to cough. Maybe talking about these singers made me realize what a poor instrument I myself have residing in my throat. Okay, let's do this. Quick break, then Roald Dahl's writing career, then his life, including all of his dark secrets, or at least some of the dark secrets, some of the ones that have surfaced. We'll start all that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Dahl seems to have had a knack for meeting famous people, maybe because of his schooling or maybe because of his family wealth, his conviviality, his conversationalism, his skills at... What is conversationalist? His skills at conversation? I'm not sure. We will cover that when we get to his biography in the next section. But for now, let's begin our story of his writing career with one of these famous people he met, C.S. Forrester the English novelist known for writing the Horatio Hornblower series. That series, which was a very popular look at the British Navy during the Napoleonic Wars, but nowhere nearly as good as Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Maturin series, by the way. 
Horatio Hornblower, Hornblower began in 1950 with a book called Mr. Midshipman Hornblower, but C.S. Forrester had been publishing novels for 20-some years before that. Forrester was writing a story for the Saturday Evening Post, and it was going to be about the Royal Air Force, and he wanted to interview Dahl for it, use some of his anecdotes, tell me about your experiences in the war. That was going to be the story about Dahl's experiences with the Royal Air Force during the war. So Dahl agreed that he would write down some anecdotes, take some notes for Forrester to use, and what he wrote was so good that Forrester said, well, let's just publish this as is. There's nothing more for me to do here. So Forrester and Dahl had given the story the title A Piece of Cake, but the magazine changed it to Shut Down Over Libya to sell more copies, even though Dahl had not actually been shot down. In any case, Dahl took the thousand bucks, I've seen it elsewhere, as $900. He took the money, and he was now on his way as a writer. A year later, he published his first children's book, The Gremlins, which was also about his experiences as a Royal Air Force pilot, which he gave to the president, Franklin Roosevelt, the president's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, read the book to her grandchildren. The interesting thing about this book, which is Dahl's first children's book, is book, is that he didn't actually aim the book at children, which is kind of one of the hallmarks of Roald Dahl, actually. His books appeal to children, and they're marketed to children, but the prose is as sophisticated as many books for adults. It's not Ulysses or anything, but the prose and diction are as advanced as anything you'd find on a supermarket wall. As a child, I remember thinking that Dahl was not talking down to me. He was not an adult pretending to inhabit the mind of a child. This was his mind. He was talking to me, just as he'd talk to other children or other grown-ups too. Maybe a little less adult in subject matter than, say, the mystery stories that he also wrote, he won the Edgar Award three times for his mystery stories, and he wrote a classic Hitchcockian story about a man who bets another man using his fingers as the stakes. That was an Alfred Hitchcock Presents story in the 1980s. became a television episode that blew me away. Would probably still scare me, I think. I hope. Hope it hasn't aged that much. If you could find it, it's probably on YouTube. Anyway, it takes place in Las Vegas, if you're looking for it. Anyway, his fame came from children's stories, Roald Dahl's fame. They're darker than a lot of people will think of when they set out to write children's stories. But children can take it, obviously. Some of the best-loved children's books are pretty dark, indeed. So, that's where we are in his writing career. The Gremlins and a short story. Dahl was in his mid-twenties. His writing career was about to take off. Soon he was selling stories for adults to magazines and newspapers, and for the next 15 or so years, these were published in places like Cosmopolitan and the Saturday Evening Post, and then gathered up into collections of short stories. That's who Roald Dahl was, an adult writer, writer for grown-ups. And then, in 1961, he published the first novel, that he had written specifically for children, James and the Giant Peach. He had found his calling. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory came out three years later, then The Magic Finger, 
That takes us through the 60s. The 70s were even more productive. Fantastic Mr. Fox, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, Danny, the champion of the world, The Enormous Crocodile, and a book for adults called My Uncle Oswald. He published another six novels for children in the 1980s, including The BFG and Matilda. In all, he's sold more than 200 million books in 63 languages. It's incredible, really. And even though I'd say four or five of those are well-known titles, it's really Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that made his name. I've listened to this book a thousand times. My son used to listen to the audiobook in the car, the Eric Idle version, which is pretty fantastic. There's a famous movie with Gene Wilder, and there have been some other adaptations as well. I think there was a Johnny Depp one, and those are much loved. Why? Why is this book so popular? I think it has a somewhat perfect structure. Charlie Bucket lives with his grandfather. He grows up poor. He wins a golden ticket to take a tour of the mysterious and magical chocolate factory on the edge of town. He and four other children are there. Augustus Gloop, Veruca Salt, Violet Beauregard. I always forget the other one. Mike TV. That's who it is. They all have very vivid personalities. They all have their flaws. And Wonka, Willy Wonka, is a sort of demented but cheerful mad scientist slash carnival barker who gives them a tour. And the star of the show, I think, are the candy, the chocolates, and all the other candies. It's clear that Roald Dahl never forgot those sweets in that sweet shop. His inventions, everlasting gobstoppers, fizzy lemonade swimming pools, marshmallow pillows, square sweets that look round, luminous lollies for eating in bed at night, hot ice cubes for putting in hot drinks. It's all a little marvelous, a little fantastical, but that's how candy is. And it's how it's marketed. And yes, it's Fun to think of the Willy Wonka candy as magic, but it's not all that far from the truth. I can remember commercials for Hubba Bubba gum that would squirt when you bit into it, and the bright colors of Mounds and Almond Joys and Whatchamacallits and hostess treats like snowballs and ding-dongs and ho-hos, and there was a sense of discovery when you're a kid. Like, have you ever eaten a $10,000 bar? Or have you ever tried these honey buns? Or milk duds, or a junior mint. And they're new and fresh and exciting. And here, breakfast cereal is like this too. And here's Dahl, a grown man who taps into all this and presents it like it's wondrous and fun. And it is wondrous and fun. And yet, in the book, some of the kids die and Willy Wonka is dark. And Dahl often started his books with parents dying or the announcement that the child was an orphan or completely destitute. And you end up with this weird combination of the good and the bad, and it's all sort of carried along by Dahl's spirit and his energy and his commitment to the weird fun of the experience that his characters are going through. There's nothing else quite like Roald Dahl. Dahl became a beloved figure based on these books. Kids love them. Grown-ups maybe found them a bit dark, a little mean even. 
I remember being somewhat scared of them when I was young. I don't know why exactly. Willy Wonka seemed too intense for me. I didn't like him as a hero. He seemed manipulative and unsafe. And the children seemed to be punished. And I took no pleasure in that. A child disappearing? Dying? I wasn't laughing. <laughs> I was terrified. I didn't feel like Charlie was victorious at the end. Or I should say I didn't feel any triumph in that. I felt relieved that he hadn't been slaughtered by this wicked candy man. As an adult, I appreciate them more, their dark humor. And my son was little, and he laughed and laughed hard and really loved it, and I loved it too. Those audiobooks, mostly because of Eric Idle's reading of it, which made me, you know Eric Idle, right? From Monty Python, the one who's, one with reddish hair who always had to write by himself because the others were partnered up. But also the really funny one, he's the one who was on the cross who sang Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, that guy. And he's the one, the man who told one of my favorite jokes ever, an interview response, really, where he was asked the question, if your house were burning, what's the one thing you would run back inside to get? And he said, my penis, which still makes me laugh. So I got to hear Eric Idle. And my kid was going through his language acquisition phase, so he was memorizing long stretches of the book, which was amazing. You could turn it off, and he could just keep going for page after page after page, doing all the voices, everything. I'm sure he couldn't do that now, but when he was three, he could. Kids and their brains are incredible. And there was one other Roald Dahl book I loved above all the others of his. It was one of my very favorite books of all time, maybe second in my childhood only to the Great Brain series, Danny, the Champion of the World. In this one, Danny lives with his father. The mother has died. They live together in a gypsy caravan, which is just like one that Dahl actually had for himself in his backyard, which he used for a while as a writing studio. The two of them, Danny and his father, fix cars for a living, and one night, Danny learns a secret about his father. His father has a habit, which he does at nighttime. He poaches pheasants. He steals them from a wealthy man who owns some land nearby. The land is thick with trees, but also full of gamekeepers who watch the grounds at night and will sometimes shoot buckshot at the poachers. And then one night, Danny's father goes out poaching and he doesn't come home. And Danny has to take things into his own hands. He saves the day. And then his father teaches him more about poaching, including some unforgettably marvelous tactics that have been used. And then Danny develops an idea for poaching that will turn him into the greatest poacher of all time, the champion of the world, if he and his father can pull it off. It's such a wonderful book, and it has such wonderful moments. It really struck a chord with me. I'm not sure why. I think it's because my own father, a teacher, totally straight-laced, a man who never swore or raised his voice, who just contributed to his community with a smile, ate his simple meals, and enjoyed his simple pleasures. He wasn't a lawbreaker, but sometimes... You can feel that way. When my mom was gone and my dad was in charge of dinner, 
He'd make menus for my sister and me to order from. It felt a little subversive, a little outlawish, somehow. Every birthday, we'd have a treasure hunt with clues that would send us all over the house until we found our present. Sometimes my father would go down to a park and hide pennies everywhere so the little kids could run around finding them, giving them a sense of treasure. There was a sense of grifting, of getting away with something, of living life a little bit outside the, the expected. A touch of magic, a dose of fun. He would take me to football games in Madison at the Wisconsin University of Wisconsin, the Badger games, and we'd go into the Broughton Brow, where we'd buy a couple of brats with brown mustard. And instead of standing in the huge crowd of people trying to get to and from the lunch counter, which was uncomfortable, not easy to eat that way, standing up, jostled, he would instead show me to a little side door that he had found, which led directly into an alley. And he and I would sit on a concrete step, apart from the crowds, and it felt like we were getting away with something, like we'd found this secret place, the very best place in the world to have our lunch, and a place my mom would not have gone in a million years. That was the fun part about being with Dad. His favorite restaurant was one where they served you peanuts in the shell, and you threw the shells right on the floor. They piled up, and as you walked in and out of the restaurant, your shoes crunched down on the shells. Actually, I think that was his second favorite restaurant. His favorite restaurant was one where they served up a burger and didn't even use a plate. They tore off a sheet of wax paper, slapped it down, and gave you the burger on top of that. And my favorite times of all were the Saturday mornings when my father, who was a coach of a junior varsity basketball team, would wake me up early, before dawn, and we would drive to the gym in the freezing Wisconsin cold, and we'd stop off at the one store that was open that early, a brightly lit place that made donuts. We'd buy donuts for the team and hot chocolate for us. We'd have the heat blasting in our car, that great combination of freezing air outside and warmth inside. Everything feels okay when you have a dad who's there and stable and buying things. And if he is, and if you're, even if you're not rich, he keeps that from you, makes you feel like you're rich. And if he has a touch of whimsy, a touch of magic, a recollection of how fun it is to be a kid and how incredible it is to have things like a donut with sprinkles or a cap pistol or a good ball that bounces just right, or a bicycle with playing cards in the spokes to sound like a real engine. If that's the dad you get, then everything's great. And Danny has a dad like that. Only for them, the stakes are higher. Danny was like me, except he could fix cars and even drive them, which is not something I would have dreamed of doing. And my own dad would get away with little jokes and pranks but he wasn't out there breaking the law and getting shot, which would have scared me. I knew the joys of safety and camaraderie and the feeling of adventure, and Roald Dahl heightened it. And so he was one of my favorite authors, just on the strength of this book alone. I've read it as an adult, and I still love it. And so, with this kindly gentleman in my childhood, 
balding with a high forehead, mostly harmless, avuncular if not grandfatherly. I lived with an idea of Roald Dahl as a sort of writerly Santa Claus. And then, as a grown-up, I learned lots of things about him, about his past and his life and his views about the world. He was a fighter pilot. He was married to a movie star, a spy. And he had some dark secrets, some less-than-pleasant beliefs. I didn't know any of this when I was a kid reading the books, but it made him much more interesting. I don't know if it makes the books better or if it makes them worse, but it made the writing of those books and the man who wrote them a much more complicated figure. Let's take one more break and then go through the life of Roald Dahl. Dahl's parents were Norwegian. His father, a wealthy man, had originally been married to a French woman, and they had two daughters together. After the first wife died, he married again to Dahl's mother, who had come from Norway to England or Wales just five years before. Roald Dahl's first language was Norwegian, which is what they spoke at home. It was a mostly unhappy childhood. He had, they had money, but not good luck. Dahl had three sisters. One of them died from appendicitis when he was three. His father then caught pneumonia and died that same year. Dahl's mother considered returning to Norway at that point, but they stayed in Wales because they thought the schools that they could send the kids to in England were the best source of education. Roald was sent to a series of public schools, which we in America call private schools. Dahl hated life there. He hated the hazing, the cruelty, the status climbing, and the authoritarianism. The canings could be quite severe, and once his friend Michael was so viciously beaten that Dahl later said he began to doubt whether God was real. The idea that parents willingly sent their children to this place where older boys and adults could be so brutal toward them, and that this was supposed to be good for you, and even the pinnacle of childhood, that you should consider yourself fortunate to be there, privileged, he wondered how this could be, how this could be the state of things in a just and virtuous universe. He played some sports. He was tall, eventually becoming six foot six, and he had some hobbies like photography. He had that marvelous connection to chocolates. The Cadbury Company was nearby and they sent new chocolates to the school, as I mentioned earlier. New flavors and varieties for the kids to try. Dahl dreamed of inventing a new chocolate, a new chocolate bar that Mr. Cadbury himself would approve of. It's not hard to see where that ended up. <laughs> it was a dream that never died, I think. He also put this, here's his writing tips. 
Eight main rules for children's books. Listen to this. Number one, just add chocolate. I'll give you the rest of the eight because it gives us a window into Roald Dahl. Number two, adults can be scary. Number three, bad things happen. Number four, revenge is sweet. Number five, keep a wicked sense of humor. Number six, pick perfect pictures. Number seven, films are fun, but books are better. And number eight, food is fun. There's an incident I love from these days at school. Dahl's English teacher gave him a bad grade and wrote in his school report, quote, I have never met anybody who so persistently writes words meaning the exact opposite of what is intended, end quote. I actually have a theory that this was actually intentional. Dahl, I'm guessing, was taking a kind of pleasure in getting a word wrong, making it mean something different, playing around with it. My older son learned the alphabet and recited it dutifully. My younger son refused to say anything past the letter C. He would say A, B, C, duty. No matter how much you tried to bribe him or demand that he keep going with the other letters, try to coerce him, he would say that and stop. A, B, C, that was it. He knew the alphabet, though. For a long time, I wondered if he did. I thought he did. I suspected it but he would never say it. And then one day, he was in his bathtub waiting for me. He didn't know I was right behind him. He was standing up, hanging onto the bar above the soap dish, doing a little dance and reciting the alphabet to the wall, just whispering it. He got all the way to the end. He said, Z. And I said, aha. He spun around, startled that he wasn't alone. And his little face was first shocked to see me, and then he was furious because he knew he'd given up his great secret. And so it turns out now he's doing just fine, and the older one is too. They both know the alphabet now, of course. They both can read. They both have their own strengths and weaknesses. They have completely different attitudes, but I wouldn't trade either one of them for anything else in the world. My guess is that Dahl was doing something similar to what my younger son was doing, he knew what the words meant, is my guess. He was thinking, they want me to write the sentence. Well, what if I use this word wrong? What if I put the opposite of what I mean in here? That's fun. What if I do it again with a different word? What will happen? How much power do these words have? That feels to me like the beginning of a writer's mind at work. But of course... I don't really know for sure. That's speculation. Dahl spent his summers in Norway with his mother's family. He liked this better than being at school. He really did not like being sent away from school. And he wrote letters to his mother from school that she saved. And he put a brave face on his experience, concealing just how unhappy he was. Things got better once he got out of school. Although he was on a track to go to university, he skipped it. Instead, finding work with an oil company, which sent him around the world. Canada he was in for a while, and then he was in Kenya and Tanzania. And then it was 1939 now, and World War II broke out for Britain. He served in a colonial army for a few months, and then he joined the Royal Air Force as a pilot. After some training, there wasn't a whole lot of training, it seems. He had flown less than eight hours when he was given a plane to fly solo. Six months later, he was assigned 
to a squadron to fight the enemy. Seventeen men started out in his training class. Only three survived the war. Dahl himself had to crash land when he was given some bad directions. And start, he was in Egypt. He was given some bad directions. He started to run out of fuel. He was flying over North Africa, and he had to try to land in the desert. His skull was fractured. His nose smashed. He couldn't see anything. Blinded. But he dragged himself away from the plane, which was on fire. After a five-month recovery period in a military hospital in Alexandria, in which he fell in love, in love and out of love with a nurse, he got a new nose, and his sight recovered slowly, and then he was fit and sent back into combat. He flew out over the sea and shot down German planes that were bombing ships. He was in the Battle of Athens, where five British planes and 22 German aircraft were shot down. Dahl said it was an endless blur of enemy planes whizzing at him from every side. Finally, he was taken out of service because of some severe headaches and blackouts he was having. He was sent to Egypt for a while, then home to Britain, where he stayed with his mother. He returned to service. This was only 1942. The war was still several years from being over. He returned to service as a flight instructor. But then he started meeting famous people. This pattern of his. He met the Undersecretary of State for Air, Harold Balfour, who was impressed by him and made him assistant air attaché at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. He didn't want to go there at first. He had to be persuaded to travel there. Once he got there... He couldn't, believe, he couldn't believe what was happening. It was another world. It was not as ravaged by war. In Great Britain, things were being rationed, but not in the States. It was not as desolate. It was bright colors instead of gray. The food was good and plentiful. He liked D.C., living in Georgetown for a few weeks, and then he began to struggle. He had been living and dying back home, fighting the fight. He knew people were still doing that, and he was here attending cocktail parties. Perhaps this is what led him to more service. In addition to writing stories now, this was when he met C.S. Forrester in this time period, which we described already, and he started writing the stories. After his stories brought him attention he got invited to more and more parties, and finally, he crossed the radar of a British spymaster named William Stevenson. Stevenson was an industrialist, a Canadian multimillionaire who owned or partially owned steel companies and aircraft manufacturers and that kind of thing. He had ties all over Europe in the 20s and 30s, including ties in Germany. And early in the 30s, he started passing along information to Winston Churchill, this was before the war. Churchill used the intelligence about the Nazis and what they were up to, their buildup, to fuel his own political rise. This is what they're doing, he was able to say, in effect, thanks in part to Stevenson's information. You, Neville Chamberlain, are doing nothing to stop it. When war broke out, Churchill became prime minister. And suddenly, persuading the U.S. to join the war effort became paramount. Churchill needed a loyal intelligence agent-slash-propagandist to help change Americans, American minds. And so he put Stevenson in charge of it. Stevenson jumped at the chance. He moved to New York, took up an office in Rockefeller Center, of all places, 
And from there, he was trying to combat German propaganda and convince or smear anyone in America who was anti-British or against the war. He drafted some writers and artists into his cause. Ian Fleming was one of them. They called them the Irregulars. Ian Fleming was one of them, a.k.a. the creator of James Bond. Noel Coward, a famous playwright. Leslie Howard, the actor of Gone with the Wind fame. They made, the Irregulars made up a fake map of Nazi invasion plans for South America to try to persuade Americans by suggesting that the Germans were going to be right on their doorstep in South America. Roosevelt himself bought into it, or at least brought it up in Congress. And then, in 1942, Dahl was sent back from the D.C. Embassy to England due to some alleged misconduct, and Stevenson jumped in. He knew of Roald Dahl, knew him from his writing. He said, this guy is reputed to be a good talker, and he's good with the ladies. He's very charming. He can move easily in social circles. I could use him. And so Stevenson brought him back to the States with a promotion. And Dahl became a spy. His main job was to figure out what the Americans were thinking and report it to Stevenson, who could convey it to Winston Churchill. There's one story of Dahl's exploits as a spy that you need to cover the ears of your children for. Dahl was used as a kind of honeypot. One of the main sources of anti-British and anti-war sentiment at the time in America was Time magazine, which was run by a man named Henry Luce, L-U-C-E. His wife, Claire Booth Luce, was herself a formidable conservative and the author of the play The Women. Stevenson developed the idea that if he could have someone seduce Claire Booth Luce, he could either get information from her about what Henry Luce was up to, or they could blackmail Luce into softening his views, or maybe they could discredit Time magazine somehow. He thought Roald Dahl, the dashing fighter pilot, six feet six, a great talker, and 13 years younger than Claire Booth Luce, might be his best bet. Dahl was assigned to the task. He was successful, sort of. I should say the seduction was successful, but it was hard to blackmail the Luces. The Luces had an open marriage, and Claire Booth Luce had already had several affairs, including with Joseph Kennedy and several other famous people. And then the problem arose that Dahl couldn't keep up with her and her sexual proclivities. He begged for reassignment, reportedly sh <laughs> reportedly shouting on a phone call that he was, quote, all effed out, although he used a more explicit word than effed. See if you can figure out what it is. <laughs> Starts with an F. He also shouted, quote, That goddamn woman has absolutely screwed me from one end of the room to the other for three goddamn nights. End quote. If it were me in charge, if I were the spy master, I would reassign him. But then again, I am not fighting Nazis. Dahl's request was turned down. Think of England. He was told, War is hell. Do your duty. And so... He soldiered on. A few years after the war, he met the actress Patricia Neal, 
and they got married in the early 1950s. They had a long marriage, 30 years it lasted, and five children together. One of his sons was tragically injured by a taxi cab who ran into his baby carriage when the child was just four months old, leaving him with brain damage. And then in 1962, Dahl's seven-year-old daughter Olivia, his oldest child, died from measles. Dahl met with a church official when he was mourning, and the official infuriated him. Somehow they were talking about Olivia being in heaven, and the church leader told him, told Dahl, that her beloved dog Rowley would never join her there. Dahl thought this was absurd, not so much that the dog wouldn't join her, but that this church leader declared that he knew such a thing with such certainty. Dull wondered why it would be that animals wouldn't go to paradise and why a child in paradise wouldn't get to see her dog. The doctrine of the church and its claims of authority and superior knowledge fell apart for him. Dahl's wife, Patricia, had some problems during her fifth pregnancy. She had three brain aneurysms and had to relearn to talk and walk. Dahl helped her during this painful and laborious rehabilitation. And then, seven years later, back when when she was recovered and was acting again, he fell in love with a set designer of an advert that she was filming. Dahl and the woman had an 11-year affair. Her name was Felicity. Eventually, Dahl's marriage to Patricia broke up. This was after 30 years and raising five children together, and he got remarried to Felicity, the woman with whom he'd been having the affair. The rest of his life was pretty much taken up with writing, winning awards, and being famous. Celebrated for his World War II heroism, his best-selling books of short stories for grown-ups, and of course, his children's novels. He wrote screenplays and participated in adaptations of his books. When critics said, these books are too dark, he responded that he was in a tradition of dark literature. The Dickens could be dark too with grown-ups who were vicious, and that children anyway loved ghost stories and vampire stories and tales about witches and so on. Grimm's fairy tales are dark and bloody and shocking. That's the tradition. And then Roald Dahl sort of had the last word when he could simply say, I don't think children are reading the stories you're writing that are so-called nice or improving or moral. Dahl had his view and his way of writing, and he had receipts. What's harder to stomach these days is that Roald Dahl had some politically questionable characters in his books which deal in some ugly stereotypes. And if you're of the mind of excusing that as just being of its time and so on, that's one thing, but please don't try to extend that to Roald Dahl's comments about Hitler and the Holocaust, which are pretty unforgivable. His wife called him Rolled the Rotten because of his cheating on her and his mean streak at home. He hated being thought of as a children's author. He could be mean about that. There was a lot of dyspepsia in his worldview. A lot of pain came behind it in his past, but who cares about that, really? That might be an excuse for unhappiness, but it's not an excuse for cruelty or anti-Semitism. So there we go. We have yet another author like William Faulkner with his truly awful comments about race. A lot of good comments, too, when he was sober, 
but let that whiskey flow and some ugliness came chattering out of him. We've covered this in past episodes. So we have yet another author where we might love the books, but learn more about the man that makes us not like him all that much. But as I have said many times here on the History of Literature podcast, we're reading books, not people. And we consider the good and the bad because we're grown-ups, and that's how we look at life, too. There are very few people who are purely good and very few characters and very few books. Life is full of villains and villainous behavior. We're deciding what to read, not who to worship. If it works for us, if the book works for us, then that's great for us. If it doesn't, who needs it? We can move on. We don't need to ban books just because the author said something we don't like, just like we don't need to require that everyone read those books or like those books. This is about us, people, as readers. I'm not talking about who we should put on a postage stamp. Let's think of it this way. Let's say everyone in Star Wars wrote literature. We could say, okay, Luke's good. He's decent. He's the hero. That's safe. Let's read his short stories. But don't you also want to read Darth Vader's novel? Or Ben Kenobi's Zen Cohen's? or Princess Leia's epic poem? Don't you want to watch the film that Han Solo directed or hear the grunge rock that Chewbacca recorded? Jabba the Hutt wrote a sonnet cycle. Should we take a look? Wouldn't your life be richer if you brought all that in, the good and the bad, to see what you thought of it? You might like that Darth Vader novel better than anything any of the others wrote, maybe. And that will give you something to think about, something to argue against, something to reflect upon, something to analyze. You're reading for you, not because reading something lights a candle to some saint who wrote it. So, let's read Luke as well as Leah, Faulkner as well as Harper Lee. I won't forget Danny, the champion of the world. That book made me appreciate my father, and it changed the way I have been as a father, I think. And it really thrilled me as a kid. And it made me feel safe underneath the covers as I read about Danny and his dad doing things that I would never dream of doing. But my dad and I had our own adventures, and the book reminded me of that. And I learned that the adventures I had with my dad were one of the great experiences I was having as a child. I learned that not looking back, not in retrospect, but in real time. The book said to me, This is why that was so much fun. That's what the book said to me. It's not because you were doing something crazy, although it wasn't normal. And it's not because you were doing something dangerous, although it felt pretty exciting. It's because you were doing that side by side with your dad, feeling like you were growing up into the person that he was. You'd get there someday, but for now, you were safe in his protection, aware of danger, but steering clear of it for now able to taste the excitement and the magic of childhood, which was as sweet as anything you could buy from a jar. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Roll Dahl! Ugly in some ways, mean and vicious like some of his characters, but also light on his feet or with his pencil like some other characters of his. Let's all try to minimize the meanness and boost the lightness in our world. 
I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.